Hello everyone and welcome to the Hidden Lives of Writers. My name's Fiona Snickers and I'm joined by Gail Schimmel. Hi Gail. Hello everyone. Gail, you told me something interesting just before we started recording. You said you had had a fantastic writing week, so I want to hear all about it. And Fiona, you know, it's been a long time since I've, I've kind of had that energy and that feeling of, of things are going well. And I have for a while been sitting on the idea of a new book, letting it brew, thinking about the characters, thinking about how it should be structured. I took a long time to figure out my way into the story. So normally when the story comes to me, so does the structure of the book. I've, I've, I've never before had to think of the structure of the book separately from the story. Like, where am I going to start? Whose point of view? It normally comes with the idea. And this time I really, I couldn't find my way into the story. And then on Monday, I was like, damn it. If you don't start writing this book, you're going to develop such a bad fear of it that you never, you're never going to start. And mm-hmm. I started and I'm like a person who's been wandering in the desert. You know, you know, I've been trying to write a rom-com that I didn't really love writing in the way that I normally love writing. And I feel like I found the water mm-hmm. and I'm drinking deeply and I've had four writing days this week and I've written 5,000 words and I had one day of writing 2,000 words in the day without even feeling like it was hard. And I just, I feel like I've come back to my happy space and I've realized I have to write a slightly dark book to be having fun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Fiona, I hope you've had as much fun writing as I have. I wouldn't say as much fun. I'm not quite in that happy place, but... It's been productive. Um, it's, it's been a few weeks since we last recorded just because of the way our guests have been scheduled. But in that time, I did finish a screenplay for a feature film, which I'm sure I've been talking about ad nauseum. <laughs> um, but I've, I've finished it now. I was told to put it in a drawer for a couple of weeks and go back to it and look at it again. Um, before submitting it to anybody, which is the advice we normally give to people yes. for their novels and is something I never do. I normally start the revision process immediately. But because I'm such a novice at this, I thought, let me take that tried and tested advice and do it. And in the meantime, I've been reading other people's movie scripts. Okay. So I signed up for a, a service called The Script Lab, and it is a paid service, but you can get access to the shooting draft of almost any movie ever made and a whole bunch of, of series as well. So I've looked at the script for Fleabag, uh, for a movie called Idiocracy, for Oppenheimer, for Barbie, for all sorts of mm. recent movies. And I'm just trying to pack them into my head mm. so that the idiom of film writing is in my head before I go back and read over my probably quite clunky manuscript. I need a Fiona Snickers to read on holiday. <laughs> when am I going to get a new Fiona Snickers? You are soon. Um, I have also been working on oh, thank God. a cozy <laughs> witch mystery book. So there, there definitely will be something for you to take on holiday with I'm you. I'm very relieved. A deep breath there. <laughs> what have you been reading or watching or listening to lately besides Fiona Snickers? So, as you've just mentioned, we've had quite a break between the last time we spoke and now, and in that time I've gone on holiday, Mm -hmm. and I read in a very hungry way on holiday. I read a book a day, and anyone who's followed that journey of mine won't be surprised by what I'm about to say, but I absolutely love the latest Steve Cavanaugh. I always love his work. It's one of the writers I buy as soon as they hit the e-shelves. And this book is called Kill For Me, Kill For You. And it's based on that Agatha Christie idea of Strangers on the Train. Mm -hmm. And it's Strangers on the Train is referenced in the book. The idea of if two people want to murder someone, if I murder your person and you murder my person, then... Um, no one will no suspect, one will suspect and make sure we have good alibis when our person gets murdered. And the thing that Steve Cavanaugh does that is always amazing is he starts with what other writers would keep as the secret he starts with. Mm-hmm. So you know from the beginning of the book that this is what these people are going to do. But because it's him, 
it gets complicated and then it gets more complicated. At one point of this book, I actually yelled, oh my God. And my husband came running to see that I was okay. I finished the book with my heart pounding. I've never had such a physical reaction to the twists in a book. And it's given me almost a new benchmark of what a thriller should be. Loved it. You know, I, I saw your review of it and I read it on the strength of that. And I didn't 100% click with it. Really? Everything you say is quite true. It is incredibly twisty and turny, and he's a marvelous plotter. But I felt as though he just flings plot at the page, and he doesn't waste his time with characterization or with what I would term sort of good or quality writing. Interesting. So um, I felt as though... Yes, the plot is absolutely first class and you, you can't see what's coming. You just can't, no matter how good yeah. a plotter you are. But I didn't feel as though the characters were well developed and I don't feel as though he writes very well. That's so interesting. Okay, we're going to have to ask other people to weigh in and tell us what they think. Yes. Team this. Team Gale or Team Fiona when it comes to <laughs> Steve Cavanaugh's latest book. But I think the one thing we can promise you is a, a story. Definitely, definitely. You know, he's a fantastic plotter. Fiona, what about you? What have you been reading, listening to, consuming? Well, I told you earlier that I've got a new reading technique. And you were saying, well, does one need a technique for reading? And basically, yes, in this age of social media, we've spoken yes. about being so distracted by our phones. I found it was taking me much too long to get through a book. Mm -hmm. I used to get through a book every few days, and it was now a book every few weeks, which mm -hmm. is just not acceptable. So I've set myself an actual target. I read mostly on Kindle, and when I start a new book, I try to read 20% of that book a day. So it never takes me longer than five days to read a book. And, you know, people say to you, oh, you're taking the fun out of reading. You're turning it into a task instead of a joy. But it's brought the joy back for me. Very interesting. When I read a book slowly, I'm not enjoying it. Mm. When I read it fast, I get the full impact of it and I actually enjoy the process. And it resonates because that's what I do on holiday. I have the time yes. to read fast and to read in big chunks of time and yes. I loved the reading I did on holiday and it wasn't that I read the greatest books on earth um, I actually to be honest read a whole lot of crap in between nice books <laughs> but I loved reading again so I think there's something in that it's working for me and um, a book that I read recently according to that schedule is The Girls of Summer by Katie Bishop uh, which is sort of one of the latest book club books that's okay. around at the moment and uh Initially, I thought, oh, I, I don't know if this is quite for me because it, it had a very familiar trope in it, which is, um, I remember Lynn Truss identifying this trope, I think back in the nineties, and she called it the boring old husband trope, you know, where it's a long term marriage and the wife is just bored because her husband's just too nice, you know, and for some reason that really rubs me up the wrong way, maybe because I do have a nice husband who's not at all boring, um, but it, it, I don't know why it just irritates me, that trope, the idea that girls have to be attracted to the bad boys. I mean, who are the bad boys, the ones who never see their children? I mean, is that attractive now? I don't really know who I'm mad at, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you're very mad. I'm very mad. Did the book get better? The book got a lot better. Yes, it really did. It, it turned out to be about something entirely different. Um, it's, it's a story about sex trafficking, human trafficking. It's a story about the stories that we tell ourselves to explain our youth. You know, okay. we all think, yes, we were a bit dumb and naive in our youth, but we still create a narrative around what happened in our youth. And as adults, it can take a lot of unstitching to kind of get rid of that and to tell yourself a new story about what happened. And that's what the book's about. And I, I would actually recommend it. That sounds fascinating. It is. It's, it's very Fiona, interesting. Fiona, before we get to our guest, I think we have to explain to our listeners because I know our guest today has just had a frightening experience of 
finding herself in Israel. And I think we have to point out to our listeners that as we are recording, it is the week after the war broke out in Israel yeah. over the weekend, basically. Yes. That's Friday the 13th That's of October right. as we're recording. Um, so just to put our guest and what she says into context. Yeah, we have no idea where this is going, but as we speak, it has been the first week of this horrifying war in the Middle East. Our guest today is Mandy Wiener, who arguably needs no introduction, but Mandy is the author of Killing Kebel, The Whistleblowers, Behind the Door, Ministry of Crime, and also the co-written projects, My Second Initiation, The Memoir of Vusi Piccoli, and The Robert Marawa Story. Mandy is the current presenter of the Midday Report on 702. Hi, Mandy, and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be with you. It is so exciting having you in the studio, Mandy. <laughs> I've been waiting for this all week. Um, Mandy, going to jump right in. How has your writing week been? Oh, terrible. Terrible. It's been very hard um, because of what's been happening in the world this week. Uh, I was in um, Israel at the weekend when uh, the the Hamas attacks happened. Uh, so it's just been stressful generally and having to, to be on air. But I have had to write some things around that. Um, so I have, uh, I wrote a column um, about it, which I then decided not to publish. Oh. Um, just because it's very tricky. So I wrote a great column, but no one will read it. <laughs> um, and then I had to write a speech that I gave to the King David uh, Victory Park Matrix Valedictory this week. And, and that was quite a difficult task. So mm. that's a quite a bit of crafting. Uh, but I haven't really had the the brain capacity to have be able to write anything else this week. You were literally in Israel as it all started mm. with your kids. Correct, yeah. It was very stressful because I, I was alone with both of my children and I um, it was at the airport. Driving to the airport was stressful because you have to drive into Tel Aviv. And then I was at the airport and the, air, the, the sirens went off and I had to leave my luggage, grab my kids, run down to the bomb shelter. You could hear the the exploding intercept oh missiles God. overhead and you just don't know if one's going to yeah. get through and land um, and just the, the stress of the whole situation and then it's just been a, a really tricky week it's 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 been really really difficult I think it's one of those where you can be forgiven for not having written 50,000 words as I know is your habit when you're in a good writing week <laughs> here we go you're going to give me a hard time about the, the pace Absolutely. of my writing <laughs> So tell us about that. When you are in the throes of a book project and the world is not at war, what does your writing week look like? Um, so, so my writing week, as as you would describe it, has completely evolved over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to, um, before I had children or before I had a daily radio show, I could sit down for hours and just write. Hours on end, and uh, as and as Gail will tell you, yes, I can produce thousands of words. Um, it's different with with nonfiction. I find I think you can write quicker with nonfiction. A lot of it is direct quotes, but uh, since I've had kids and I've got daily commitments, I I have to write in pockets. So I literally could write for half an hour and then uh, go do a radio show and then uh, try find another another hour to write and then have to go do school lifts it's all over the place it really is it, it's very difficult so so it's hard to say that i can produce 2000 words a day i could produce 8000 words a day it depends and it also depends on deadlines as well i'm so proud of myself because one day this week i wrote 2000 words and here's mandy telling us how it's so hard because she can only produce 2000 words in a day i'm just going to sit here and cry in the corner <laughs> I was working on the whistleblowers um, at the time. So it might have been just pre-COVID. And we were hashtagging on the Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, uh, Writer's Gym. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a bunch of authors who yeah. were all sharing about and how you, much you wrote to, every day. You had to commit at the beginning of the week how much you were going to write. And at the end of the week, you had to report back on how much you'd written. And the rest of us were like aiming for 2,000 words a week. And then there was Mandy Wiener. 
I only wrote 10,000 words this week. It hasn't been a very good week. <laughs> and us fiction writers were like, hate her. <laughs> <laughs> That's different with nonfiction. <laughs> but talk us through that process. Do you get all the research done and then do all the writing in one go? Or do you kind of interweave the two together? Uh, so the last book I wrote was Robert Marawa's book, which was me sitting down doing lots and lots and lots of, of interviews with him, hours on end. Taped, so recorded taped, recorded, and then I don't transcribe my own interviews. Mm-hmm. I used to, and then I realized this was an enormous waste of time. Uh, so I do not transcribe my own interviews. I just find it too laborious. I find it just boring. Uh, it's boring. You have to sit and listen to somebody twice. And you're already listening to them so much. (laughs) So I then take the full transcript and I'm quite methodical in how I interview someone. So I interview them with how I'm going to write in in mind. Oh, interesting. Um, And I've learned to do that because otherwise you are all over the place Mm -hmm. and then you are trying to find bits and pieces everywhere. I structure my interview in the way that the book is going to be written so that I can follow that process while it makes the writing much easier. And so you've decided before you start writing what that structure looks like. Yeah, obviously it, it evolves um, depending on what they say. Uh, and you you might pull out part of an interview for a prologue or um, for, for something else. Uh, and sometimes you'll go back and try and fill gaps if you can. But generally I find that I think beforehand, okay, how is this going to flow? Often it's chronological, mm. just the easiest way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, other interviewers might do it differently and might say, let's – talk on themes. I don't like to do that. I find it ends up being all over the place. I'd imagine how to tell a story, start at the beginning, tell the story. I'm Mm -hmm. sure there's an Alice in Wonderland quote about that, (laughs) but I can't think of it right now. Um, So when you are doing a kind of co-written project, like for Vusi Piccoli or Robert Marawa, do you as the author feel as though your primary duty is to the subject or to the reader? And how would that sort of change your approach? I do think it's a bit of both. Um, I think it is predominantly the the author, the subject, um, because they I always believe it's their version, it's their story, right? Um, which is also a bit um, a bit difficult as a journalist. I also feel that I I have an obligation to try and get them to tell the stories in the best way possible, so that the, re- the reader will then find it interesting, uh, and it will be readable. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Robert particularly, I had to work very very hard to to get him to elaborate and be more emotive on things because um, he it's not his nature to do that, right. So uh, you have to work very hard to draw them out and get more detail and to tell a story. So then your duty is to the reader as well. But you have to stay true to the story. In mm. some instances, the, the subject may not want to speak about something and you've got to push them further and further and further to speak about it. I want to take a step back. We've missed something we usually start with, which is how you came to be here. Um, what is your superhero origin story? What did you study? How did you get here? How did you become to be the famous Mandy Wiener? And we're going to talk about being the famous Mandy Wiener later. <laughs> you say it like that. Um, so how did I get here? Uh, so I grew up in Polokwane, which was in Petersburg. I went to Capricorn High School. Um, and the one thing I have to mention is that there are quite a few um, of us who went to the same school in the media industry. And that is because we had an amazing English teacher. Okay. Um, and we, we had a few amazing English teachers, actually. The whole English department was, was incredible. And I think that's, that's really, really uh, interesting because there are so many, there's about four or five of us who are either read news or are reporters or are broadcasters who all went through the same English department. And I think that that is really notable Mm. because Mm. I think that we had a passion for it. Um, We love literature, love, love the news. Um, So, so that was, you know, where, where I grew up. And then I went to Rao to university of Johannesburg and I started working at Rao radio 
uh, and then I landed up getting a job at uh, at 702 writing traffic. So I used to write traffic and I used to uh, call screen overnight. And what did you study? Journalism. Okay. Uh, so so I made I did a BA majoring in English and journalism. Okay. Uh, because there's no straight journalism, there was no, no. straight journalism degree. It was like, oh, did you go to Rhodes? Because there are actually other journalism schools in the country. Um, so I, I majored in English and, and journalism. Um, and then I started uh, working at 702. I call screened overnight. I, uh, Can you explain that to us? What is call screening? So you're the person who answers the phone when people phone into the radio station and at two o'clock on a Saturday morning, uh, very interesting people phone into radio stations. <laughs> yeah. so you deal with like all kinds of weird and wonderful people. Right. Um, and you make the call whether to sort of put them through to the host. Too or... drunk to go on air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this one's sanity is questionable. Um, yeah. So you make the call to. To, if they go on air or not. Uh, and then I just, I begged Katie Catapodis for a job and I begged her and I begged her. And eventually she sent me out to do a story about water shortages in Houghton. And I got held up at gunpoint wow. on my very first story. Wow. And, uh, Related to the story or just no, coincidentally? I was in Houghton speaking to people about water shortages, um, with a friend. And these guys pulled up and held up, held me up at gunpoint. They saw my 702 microphone and then apologized <laughs> saying that they had, uh, they were looking for somebody else and then gave me my belongings back. But I had recorded the whole thing and then it landed up on the front page of the star and I was on John Robbie's show and Katie gave me a job as a reporter. And that's so how thank you to those guys. So that exactly. was actually a career move to get held totally. up at gunpoint. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. I set it all up. It was all part of the, <laughs> the plot. Um, and then I just started reporting and I started, I, I would just stick my hand up for every breaking news story. I was just desperate to, to make a name for myself. Um, I loved the breaking news. I loved the adrenaline of it. I loved being like in the thick of things. So I just started reporting and reporting and reporting. Um, in the back of my head, I always had this idea that I wanted to write a book. Okay. Um, I used to read a lot, obviously, and I always thought, oh, I'd like to, to write a book. It's a long time ago now. It's like 20 years ago now. So I do struggle to remember what my, mm. my thinking was. Um, and I started reporting on the cable trial. Mm. And I obviously spent a lot of time on the cable trial and I got to know a lot of the protagonists and Mikey Schultz. And one day I went to Jenny Chris Williams who was doing the afternoon show on 702 at the time. And I said, I'd really like to write a book. And I thought I wanted to write a book about the elite bouncers and the whole bouncing industry. And she sent me to see a publisher and I met with the publisher and they were like, mm, story's a bit half-baked. I'm not really sure about, about it. I was very young. I'd never written anything besides one magazine article. And they sent me away. And said, uh, think about it some more, work on it. Uh, and then once I'd started reporting more on the cable trial and I'd convinced Mikey Schultz to speak to me and do interviews with me, I, I met with another publisher and that publisher was Terry Morris from Pan Macmillan. And I had coffee with her and she pretty much offered me a book deal on the spot even though I'd only written one magazine article for Marie Claire. She said, sure. Terry has vision. Yes. Yes. yes that's someone who has um, vision. Yeah. And that's how I started as a writer. And I wrote Killing Kevil. You'll be <laughs> you're a little bit shocked. Say, you're going <laughs> to say something terrible like two weeks. Now. I wrote it in three months. <sighs> and I wrote it in three months um, while I was building a house and planning a wedding. But Katie, Your own wedding. My own wedding, okay. yes. But Katie Katapodis at EWN uh, did something which I'm incredibly grateful for. And she decided to give me leave. And it was very unusual at the time. I said to her, I want to write a book. And she said, go for it. And I think she actually uses it as an example of of leadership in, mm. in newsrooms where she gave me time off and she said, go, take a month off, go write. And... That wasn't part of my commitment to, mm. to radio, mm. to EWN. And she let me go write the book. And I had no idea what I was doing. Like nothing. I had never 
they weren't your podcast to listen to. I didn't know how to write a book. I, didn't, I had no idea what I was doing. But I think that was the best thing that could have happened to me because I, I was so free to just do whatever I wanted to. I wasn't worried about what people would think or um, how people would read it mm. or I thought, you know, if anyone reads it, it would be amazing. I'd never written anything before. I just was, was, I was so, I just wanted to do it. Mm. And I knew it was a great story. I just never thought it would have the reaction that it did. I think there is a freedom in that first book that you never get back again. Because after the first book, you're yeah. aware of readers and aware of that it, your second book might be published, actually. And, and well, what the my father will likes be. to tell me that I'll never write a book as, as successful as Killing Kevil. <laughs> yeah. So your best days are behind you. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to, to say about that because I, I, I definitely I, I carry the weight of, of, of Killing Kevil every time I write a book. I'm very interested in this idea of having time off to write compared to how you have to write now, fitting it in between an hour here and an hour there. Because I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been thinking if I wrote full time, would I actually produce anything more than I do now? How does it compare? Do, were you able to, did you feel enough pressure that you wrote quickly and you could get it out? I'm very disciplined okay. to, to write like that I would much prefer it um, because I, I would be able to to really concentrate on 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 one thing at a time I think I would write much better um, I think that I, I, I wish I could do that now and I suppose I could I know that some of my other colleagues um, who are working journalists who are writing do take chunks of time mm. off I just don't have that luxury with a with a radio show, mm. um, and I do lots of corporate work as well. Mm. So I, I think in theory, what I should do now is try and find a way to to block off my diary for a long period of time. Well, we'll just not realistic. We'll get to the question of what you would be writing <sighs> in that time. I want to ask you about you know you really have. You, you are a household name in South Africa. So you get a lot of recognition. Um, you know, people know your face, people know your voice. How has it been adjusting to that? Is, is it strange or has it happened so gradually you're not really aware of it? I think it's happened gradually, so I'm not aware of it. Uh, my face, I think, is recognizable uh, because of social media more than anything else because I don't think it's from being on, on TV. I think during COVID, mm. a lot of people were following me on, on social media. So they would see my, my face because that's my profile picture. Uh, so people recognize me more from there. Um, I still get surprised when people recognize me. Really? Yeah. I was walking in, uh, Shuka Carmel in Tel Aviv last week and a woman stopped and just stared at me <laughs> and, Hi, and I could, she was a hi. <laughs> could immediately, immediately tell that she was from Joburg. Um, <laughs> so, um, it also depends where I go. Uh, and, uh, you know, in some areas people recognize me more than, than others. Um, but it's always, it's always nice. But at the same time, I have to be quite careful. My friends laugh when I walk into a restaurant sometimes. There's some staring, but I'm not a celebrity. I'm, I'm a journalist and I never wanted to be a celebrity. It's not about that for me. You're a celebrity journalist. <laughs> so I got a lot of criticism at one point after Killing Cable came out for being a brand journalist. Okay. Um, there was a lot of flack because I, 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 I think that, that some people in the media industry thought that it was more about my brand, uh, because I'd got such a high profile. Uh, which is quite unusual in in a way, or maybe was unusual at the time. Um, and now I do a lot of keynote speaking. I do a lot of you know, corporate talks and facilitating. And there are a lot of brand journalists out there. But for me, I, I think it's the actual journalism of it that that I, I remain passionate about. Now that's what I wanted to talk about um, in my very short-lived and half-baked journalism career many years ago. One thing I came to realize is that your contacts are absolute gold and the relationship that you cultivate with your contacts is your your gold reserve as a journalist. Can you give us some tips about that or mm. talk us through the process of cultivating those contacts and also how 
you kind of keep boundaries in place so yeah. that they don't encroach on your personal life. So Killing Cable and Ministry of Crime specifically, which are the two books I've written about the, the underworld, as we call it uh, in South Africa, were only possible because of the relationships that I cultivated and spending time building credibility, building trust, building relationships with with nefarious characters and also with, with uh, lawyers. Mm-hmm. A killing cable only happened because I earned the trust of, of lawyers more than anything else. And they were able to, to introduce me and pave the way and protect me. Um, so that is, that is paramount. Um, but at the same time, you really need to manage those relationships. And I would spend a lot of time and energy managing those relationships. So you have to be so careful about what you say. So you you don't become friends with people, but at the same time, you know about their children, you know about their wives, you show an interest in, in what's happening to them. You're willing to listen to them, but there, there can't be an over-familiarity. Um, so for example... You know, I, I got to know Mikey Schultz really well. Um, if he sees me and my husband in Tasha's, he'll come up to us and, um, he's so friendly and he'll shake my husband's hand. But, uh, at the same time, there is a distance that, that you maintain with whoever it is. Uh, and I've always been very, very careful about that because you, you can't have an over-familiarity if you're going to be writing about a subject. Um, so, but it, but, but it's really crucial that as, as a journalist, you, you build those relationships and you cultivate your, your sources and that you also retain integrity and, and credibility. Because if you betray someone and you, mm. you, you, you do something to them, then, then people will not talk to you. All you have as a journalist is your reputation mm. and, and your credibility. So, so that's really important in, in getting people to talk to you. And what also happened to me was once I'd built that reputation, more people come to you and you develop a reputation. So more people want to speak to you and it's, it, it's compounded. Um, so, so it really makes it much easier. People go, Oh, why don't you speak to Mandy Wiener? Because she does this. So there is that familiarity there. And I'm sure that you've got to think long term. You can't think, okay, I'm going to blow the sauce out of the water for the sake of some kind of scoop right now. You've got to be thinking long term. No, that's not worth it. I will keep this contact alive. I will keep exactly. the trust there because of the long term payoff. Precisely. So you, you really have to be quite strategic about it and you have to make sure that you, you keep the trust of, of sources long term. And when you're a young journalist, it's hard to, to keep level headed like that mm. because when I was young, for me, I was all about breaking stories and scoops and scooping my colleagues. I was ruthless, mm. but it, but I always wanted to also retain credibility. Um, I'm a much kinder colleague now than I was then. That's for sure. Um, because we were so concerned about, about getting the story and breaking the story and getting the scoop and, uh, making sure that people spoke to us and not to, to other people. But I, I was never malicious about it. I can tell you stories about, about how, you know, how journalists treat each other sometimes, but, but largely, you know, we try and be as collegial as, as possible. I mean, I think it's true of any profession that when you are building up your, building your career, you are more ruthless because you have to be. And when you're older, you've got more space to be kinder mm-hmm. and to help people more and to kind of, and you're also more aware that maybe you, there is space for more than one person. Yeah. And for me, mentorship is a big thing now. Yeah. And just to, to be kinder, um, I try and help young journalists who want to write books get into, into the industry, uh, and, and just guide them along the process. And it, it was, it was very different when, when I was trying to break in. For me, it was about me. You've mentioned two words that I want to come back to. You spoke about the nefarious characters that you deal with and about the lawyers protecting you. How much of a sense of danger is there in the books you've written that, that you're going into quite dark worlds and quite dodgy, dodgy people that the rest of us avoid quite, um, deliberately? Um, and you are throwing yourself into this world. 
So I think that I have to be clear on this to the disappointment of many of your listeners and my readers that I can't do that anymore. I can't do it. So I've I've built a reputation as as an author and a reporter who reports on the underworld and who um, interviews gangsters. Can't do it anymore. Just can't do it. I've completely lost the the appetite for risk that I used to. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I used to be fearless. I used to think I was bulletproof. Um, I had no issue going to see someone at their home and do an interview with them if they were a renowned fugitive and international uh, gangs gang boss. Did you literally feel no fear? Not really. No, it didn't really bother me too much. Um, I, maybe it was like a kind of kernel of concern. <laughs> um, but when I was young, for me, it was, it was interesting. I was curious. Mm. I wanted to meet these people. I wanted to hear their stories. Um, and what I found was that a lot of them spoke to me because there was no judgment. I didn't judge them. I just wanted to hear what they had to say and let them give their version. I got some criticism for that. I got a bit of flack for giving them a platform and why are you doing interviews with these people? Why are you letting them talk so freely? I'd rather hear about them. It gives us insight into mm. into their way of thinking and, and their operations. And I was so intrigued by transnational crime and the way that these these structures were were set up and uh, the, the the cloak and dagger of of all of it and our law enforcement and the prosecuting authorities and how they were dealing with it so i really threw myself into that world and i i did get a reputation for it and often if there was a an assassination, I would be the first to hear about it and I'd report about it and I would spend my time on my phone confirming and speaking and getting information. I don't want to do any of that anymore. It and just why? because so for me I'm I've had children, mm. so I'm more risk averse. Um I, I feel like I got away with it for so long. And I was very fortunate. I, I I don't know if I got away with it, but also I built relationships so that nobody was wanted to target me. So they would rather phone me and tell me about stuff. And I think they quite liked the attention. <laughs> so a lot of them were, gave them credibility in a way. It built their reputation to be interviewed by me and to get their, their, their story out there. Um, I also just, I found it quite con- all consuming. Yes. So because you have to spend so much time keeping everyone happy and building relationships, I just don't have that capacity anymore. Uh, so now if I, if somebody phones me and tells me about a story or wants me to cover something, I pass it on to younger journalists. They can deal with it. I do feel like in a way there was more coverage. Uh, before about that stuff and maybe people don't hear about it as more uh, as much as they used to but also I think that that maybe could come across as quite quite arrogant because I have lots of excellent colleagues who um who do reports on on some of that that world now maybe our appetite for corrupt gangsters is a bit less because now we feel like everybody's a corrupt gangster yeah that's pretty accurate too <laughs> pretty much <laughs> I always I always used to say sorry that I would rather interview a criminal than a politician because at least I can believe what the criminal is telling me. Um, I I was wondering whether the role of talk radio itself has changed since you were in your 20s. I remember speaking to Katie Katapodis and her telling me that talk radio is the absolute bleeding edge of news breaking. And she described to me how they would break into uh, a Programming. Uh, um, programming yeah. to break the latest news. And then social media came along and I feel changed all that. Mm. News is now broken on social media, on X or Twitter or whatever you want to call it. Um, has the role of talk radio as a news delivery service changed in any way? I literally worked through that transition. So I remember sitting in the cable trial with Adrian Bosson in 2009-2010 and both of us saying to each other, let's live tweet this. 
Let's mm-hmm. see what happens. Let's see if we can do this on Twitter because there was no recordings or there was no, there was radio recordings, but there was no live broadcast of the trial like we, mm. we have now. And we started tweeting and people started picking it up mm. and people loved this idea of the tweets that, I, that we were putting out about, um, Agliotti's testimony. And it just took off completely. Yeah. Um, so when a story would break then, I would quickly phone the newsroom to break it on air whilst writing a breaking news tweet. Right. And then through the Oscar Pistorius trial, we really saw that, that transition because everyone for the bail application was following us on Twitter. It wasn't broadcast. So everything was started breaking on social media, not on air. Now what we're seeing is a lot of the, the news breaks on social media. And it still breaks on radio. So we still have the, the breaking news, uh, on, on radio. And a lot of people might be driving at the time. They'll hear mm. it on radio first still. Mm. Um, and on traditional media. So I think it's a bit of both. Um, and I, but I think the radio's role now is more to give people a space to, to collectively digest and debate and discuss all of mm. the breaking news. But I do find that radio does, you do still break news on radio. Often people hear about it first on radio, uh, but it's both. I want to talk a little bit about your role in the South African lockdown, um, because for me, you were pivotal. I could not listen to Cyril by the end of it. Um, and I would, it would, there'd be a family meeting and I remember saying to my husband, Mandy will tell me on Twitter. And I would only read you. You should ask my husband about that. <laughs> well, this is what I want to know. What was that like for you? Because you must have been aware of how many of us were counting on you to interpret it for us. And it must have become a bit of a burden. Um, I don't think it's because, I mean, of burden is, uh, is, is accurate. So I felt an obligation. It was a sense of duty. It was something that I could do. Um, I'd just like to point out that at no point was that monetized. I was just wondering about that. You were just doing that. So I never made, Mm. I I, I, I often thought, well, wouldn't it be amazing if I could find a way to monetize this? (laughs) Mm. It was very much a brand building exercise. I think I would have paid, Mandy. I would have paid to not have to listen to the whole speech and just to get the Mandy version. Yeah, so I I thought about it at the time. I was like, yeah, because I wasn't actually on radio, on, on 702 yet, when a lot of that happened. I only got a call to go work at 702 in the July of 2020. So for that first um, three or four months, I was just doing it because it was I wanted to. Um, so I never found a way to, to monetize it, but I did have a sense of obligation and, and duty. And I was quite happy to do it because... I was providing a, a service, um, but but towards the end, there were definitely, definitely family meetings where I thought, I do not want to listen to mm. this. Mm. I cannot be bothered. I would rather go and watch Netflix than do this. And, because and yet, became, I'd still end up doing it. Well, they became quite depressing. That's so that I stopped listening because I'd find I'd be so down by the end and so disenchanted. And you would tell me, are the schools open? Are the shops open? Can you buy alcohol? All the kind of key points that I actually needed to carry on with my life without that depressing mm. feeling of listening. But you have to have the depression. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if, if, if I get depressed by it. Um, and people always ask me just about the news. Why don't you get so depressed? Because you have to consume this every day. People, mm. other people have got the choice mm. to just switch off the radio and switch on a, a podcast or go, yeah, like you, you no, can just stick I your head in the ground. The news. I don't listen to it's the news. It's also my choice. I've made the choice in, mm. in life. It's my career. I choose to. Uh, but when I look at a week like this week, where it has been overwhelming to be in the media space. Um, and I know that many people would choose to look away. It's, it's hard. It's very hard. It's hard to, to navigate all of that and still worry about your mental health and stay mm. sane. I wanted to ask about, um, well, particularly your take on a big hoo-ha on Twitter recently that I think was instigated by Reedy Klaby, where she spoke about what she called, or somebody called, the juniorization of newsrooms. 
And she was basically saying that um, there aren't enough seasoned experts in newsrooms all over the country and that this has affected the quality of the news that's being produced from the sort of sub-editing, line editing to the actual credibility of the news itself. And she got a lot of flack for it. It generated a lot of probably much-needed debate. But do you think there is any validity to that? I'm sure you see it as a very nuanced question. Mm. I did not get involved on Twitter I about this. That. I deliberately chose not to, even though I was I was tagged. Um, I do have strong feelings about it. I don't think Twitter is the, necessarily the right forum to, to, to debate this. I, I largely agree with Rudy in the sense that there are not many experiences and voices around anymore. Lots of journalists become spokespeople, go work for the private sector. Um, it's, it's very hard to stay in, in, in media. Uh, firstly, you don't get paid that well as, as a journalist. And if you are enticed by a corporate salary or going to work for a government department, then it makes sense. And aren't the media corporations only too happy to get rid of the senior people that they have to pay good salaries to and just hire the sort of completely raw juniors that they can give a starting salary? They shouldn't be. They really shouldn't be because you need expertise. You need experience. You need wisdom, especially with editorial decisions. It's hard to to navigate and decide what you can publish, what you can't. We're constantly uh, having to 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 debate the ethical issues in, in the media space and how to report on things. But unfortunately, what we are seeing is a juniorization of newsrooms. And there are lots of young young journalists who are not properly trained, who are not given guidance, who are not given um, mentorship. And I'm very cognizant of this. Uh, you can speak to um, to, to journalists in, in, in the EWN newsroom, as an example, and I try and make a point where I can of of giving them advice. They know that they're always welcome to come and speak to me. Um, I try and reach out to them and and help them if they've got a difficult issue to discuss it. Uh, I have been involved in different newsrooms going in to, to, to help train. I, I, I should do more um, to in terms of, of training and, and guidance and and just sharing experience. Um, but they also have to be willing to learn, mm. and mm-hmm. that's the difficulty. So there's uh, there's amazing examples that I can tell you about of someone like Ziander Ngobo, who is a political journalist at Newsroom Africa, who as a young journalist came to work with me on a podcast series and was so eager and so willing to learn and is, I think, one of the best political journalists in the country at the moment because she's got a curiosity and um, has built a reputation. And and they also I also think that journalism is inherent. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that it's something that you can't you can teach people the the nuance and and the ethics of it, but for some people it just comes naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to have that in you as well. You have to have the curiosity. Mm. You keep coming back to that, and it's about. Yeah. I'm thinking that that's why I couldn't be a journalist. I don't have that particular type of curiosity. Um, Mandy, I want to talk to you a little bit about your different books, and I want to know which is your favourite, which you had the most fun writing, and which was the hardest. I definitely find it more difficult to co-author books. Right. I've, I've discovered this over time. Um, you could ask Barry Bateman ab- about this. We worked on the Oscar Pistorius story together. It was, um, it was fun to work with him, but the actual process is quite difficult because, uh, he has a very different style to me. And I think we were both, I just had a baby and we were both so exhausted by that story. It was toxic and terrible and we hated doing it. So, um, I think that was probably the worst book that I worked. I okay. hate, hated working on the Oscar Pistorius trial. I hated writing the book. I can't talk about it. I won't do interviews about it now. Um, it's, uh, you speak to any journalist who worked on that, on that case and mm. they'll feel the same way about it. Uh, so I, I, it was an important book. I, I do think that in many ways, Barry and I wrote the um, the definitive book on the trial, but I hated every minute of it. It was it was terrible. How but, did you divide up the writing? 
he wrote chapters largely because he was in court and I was out of court. I wasn't in court because I just had a baby. So he would do a lot of the trial forensic stuff. Mm-hmm. I did more of the overarching analytical stuff and going to do interviews with people. Um, so one-on-one interviews with, with people. Uh, and then both of us touched every word of that book. Mm-hmm. So he would send me his chapters because I'd had experience in the past and he had never written a book. He would send me his chapter and then I would incorporate it into the, the manuscript. Um, and he was amazing about that because he had never been through the writing process. He was very happy for me to take the lead on that, but he was more of a subject matter expert on it. So he had that role to play. So we, we, we wrote really well together and the process worked really well. Um, I hated the story. Mm. Um, and I just find it easier to write my own books. And mm. then also working on writing Wissy Bacoli's book and, and Robert Morawa's book, they were both in two incredible individuals. I just have, I, I'm not sure I would do it again to write somebody's book because mm. I, I think I prefer topics subjects you know not people like that one person and you prefer a single authored project where that author is you Mm. yeah i think so i think i've reached that but i had to go through it to see what it was like and and i think that's the conclusion i've reached and which is your favorite um i have kelly kibble i think just because i I had that freedom to write it and I really enjoyed the process of writing it. I felt it felt so creative. Yeah. Because I had the freedom and I didn't know what I was doing. It was a blank canvas. So I think that was my, my favorite book to write. I, I wasn't thinking about any of the, 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 the technical issues or the legal issues. I was thinking about the legal issues, but I think I'd, I had the freedom. Um, I think the most important is the whistleblowers. I told a colleague that I wanted to write a book about whistleblowers and they said, it's very worthy very worthy subject and I'm I'm so pleased that I did because I do a lot of advocacy now around whistleblowing and changing legislation and increased protection and just awareness around around whistleblowing so I feel like that's the most important book okay. that I've written right um I wanted to talk about the process of writing a book as opposed to writing a new story uh when I was at Rhodes in journalism school in first year I did news writing 101 and I learned that you cram all your best stuff into the beginning of the story so that it can be cut from the bottom. The inverted pyramid. The inverted pyramid, exactly. And uh, when one's writing a book, you don't necessarily shove all the best stuff into the first paragraph and let it tail <laughs> off so that it can be cut from below. That would be so, an awful book. <laughs> yeah. um, w- was that an adjustment for you? Do you see it as sort of two different kinds of writing? Uh, yes. I do. Um, and I used to write 40 second news reports for radio. And mm-hmm. then I had to go from that to, to writing books. So there's, there's definitely uh, a disconnect there. Um, what I find a lot of journalists do, because now every story is a book. Everyone writes a book about every big court case or news story. Um, and I've always said that that should happen, that there should be more, more books written by, by journalists because we're the ones who are, in the story and can tell the story best. But I find that many of them become extended news reports and um, especially print journalists struggle with that, that, that um, making that adjustment from writing news reports to writing books. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, my style, and you'll know this from, from reading is that I try and pull out my top line is always something that that would draw the reader in. So I always place them on the scene and I try and find something with with colour and intrigue. So that's always my top line in my first paragraph of, of a chapter. Which is so interesting because in fiction that's exactly what you do. You start in the action. Well, I think in it order is to hook narrative non fiction. Yeah. You know, that's that's exactly what the style is. Um so I'm uh, I always do try and do that. And that's not how news reports are necessarily mm. written. Do you have a new book-length project on the go or on the horizon for look at us? Girl, can you just look at Gail's face for a second? <laughs> she is such a bully. She is such a bully. No, I do not. She would like me to write fiction, 
And we've been having this discussion for months Gail now. always tries to push people to write fiction. <laughs> Truthfully, I would love to be able to write fiction. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very intimidated by it. I think it's very difficult. I don't know if I could do it, but I would love to. I've got lots of ideas. I just You're going to. Accept it. Embrace it, Mandy. As I get older and as I've lost my appetite for risk, it does seem increasingly... Um, I will eventually get my way. You must stop fighting me on this. No, <laughs> I, I, I published The Whistleblowers in, in 2020 and then a revised edition came out uh, at the beginning of this year. Mm-hmm. And I am not currently working on anything. I'm, I, I need to find something to write about. I don't know what that is. I need to find something that I, cause I find the, the writing process very taxing mm. and I have to really feel strongly about, about it, a subject. It's much easier when you don't try to write 10,000 words a day. It makes it a lot less taxing. I hear you. Putting but it, then out it takes there. so long. <laughs> I also need to write shorter books. My publishers will tell you that my books are too long. So I do need to write shorter books. Are there ideas for fiction flitting in per- and out percolating. of your brain? Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. they are. And Gail has helped me a lot with that. Um, and I think about it a lot. I, I just need to find the time and take the leap to actually do it. I briefly became so obsessed with Mandy's idea that I was unable to work on my own ideas because Mandy's idea started percolating in my head instead of my own idea. (laughs) Um, But I'm pleased to say that stage is over. I'm having my own ideas again. (laughs) When I decide to write fiction, I'll come back to you and you can give me some of your ideas. Well, Gail and I find that a great way to fill up the creative well when you are contemplating writing fiction is to read something or listen to something or be watching something, some sort of absorbing narrative. So is there anything that you've been reading, watching or listening to lately that's made an impression on you? Besides the news and (laughs) 24-hour CNN and uh, reading about the Middle East conflict. Um, So uh, when Gail was trying to convince me at the Franschuk Literary Festival to write fiction, I started binging crime fiction. Uh, and I read a bunch of Margie Orford's books and I always mm-hmm. read Dion Mayer and Mike Nichol. Um, and I, I went on a binge and I thought, okay, I can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got distracted by life and news. So I review one book every week on air and it's a non-fiction book by a local author. I interview the author of a local non-fiction book every week. So I get sent everything by the publishers and I have to read a book a week a local non-fiction book uh, so I spent a lot of time reading that mm-hmm. and I, I kind of just am consumed by that but when I'm on holiday I try and read fiction that reignites the, the thought for me and of those non-fiction books what can you recommend as something you've really loved recently um, Mark Shaw has just brought out a book called Breaking the Bombers which is about uh, the rise of Pagad and the bombings in Cape Town in the 1990s. Um, and that is fascinating. It's, it's really, really good. Uh, so, so I did an interview with him recently, which I thought was, was excellent. Um, the one I'm looking forward to reading is, has just been rushed out to print. Uh, it's the Tabo, Tabo story from the team at Ground Up that broke the, the story about Tabo Bester, which is just wild. So I am looking forward to, to reading that as well. I see their accusations. I, I saw this yesterday, in fact, that the book has been rushed to print, but I know and you know that one can write a book very quickly. Yes. And that that doesn't necessarily make it a bad book. If someone sits down and really applies bump to seat and produces lots of words, that can be a good project. Mm. So do you share these concerns that the book might have been rushed to print? No, no. And I also know that they've been working on it for a while because they made contact with me a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think that they knew a lot about it. I think rushed is relative. I remember a colleague telling me when I was working on the the Salibi trial and, and writing Killing Kibble that she can write a book in three weeks. Mm-hmm. And I said, how is that possible? And I think for some some news journalists, some news writers, mm-hmm. it is possible. It, it really is. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean it mean it's a it's a bad a bad project. Some people just Gail, sorry, write faster than others. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Mandy. 
<laughs> well, we are very much looking forward to your next project. We hope that it will appear soon. You're going to wait a while, I'm afraid. <laughs> we hope that it will be fiction and it will be exciting. And I can't wait to get the call from you saying, okay, I'm ready. So I've always thought I want to write a, a fiction book based entirely on true stories that have happened in South Africa. So the whole plot is just about actual news events. Mm-hmm. Dion Mayer has always said to me, if he had to write a book and the plot was the plot of my books, no one would believe him. Mm. Truth mm. is stranger than fiction in this country. And in the meantime, people can go back to your backlist and have a wonderful time reading basically a history of South Africa over the last 20 years. So, Mandy, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Mandy. Gail, I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. We are so privileged with the caliber of guests that we have on this show. It's just amazing that you get to have these incredible people come in and then you can ask them questions and it's perfectly expected that you drill them with questions and you don't have a normal back and forth conversation. I love it. I love it too. I got so much out of that conversation, but what did you get out in particular? I got quite a lot. I always find speaking to Mandy very stimulating. I find her so interesting. Um, And the thing that's struck me today particularly about about what makes her so interesting is what she said about curiosity mm-hmm. having a curiosity for stories and a curiosity for the news and that's what drove her to the career that she's had but I think it goes further with her I think it's what makes her such an interesting person is she has this curiosity about the world and I think it's something we should nurture in ourselves a curiosity about the world and then how much she writes. <laughs> um, I've been on a bit of a Stephen King binge and I saw a video where he talks about the fact that he writes six pages a day. Mm-hmm. And if you write six pages a day, um, it also I think shows his age a bit that he thinks in terms of pages rather than words. But yes. um, if you write six pages a day and you're writing a 360 page book, you've done your book in two months basically. And Mandy writes very quickly. Mm-hmm. It's made me think a lot about is there a inherent benefit in writing fast? Like maybe there's something that comes out when you write fast that you lose if you write too slowly. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. something I need to think about, but maybe mustn't think about too much because I do have a few other things on my plate, so I mustn't get obsessed with it. <laughs> what did you take out of that? Uh, I was very interested in what she was saying about how her – appetite for different forms of writing has changed throughout her life how in her 20s she believed she was bulletproof she was completely fearless Mm -hmm. she was so driven by that curiosity that you were talking about that she would go into any situation she would go to someone's home she would do an interview anywhere and put herself in any kind of circumstance no matter how risky and how especially since having children, she's lost her appetite for that. Mm. And she's now looking for maybe another form of writing. Obviously, in her day job, she is constantly breaking down the news and constantly writing columns and and doing what she does. So writing remains a big part of her life. But for a book-length project, she's kind of thinking about what comes next. And I think it's very true that different seasons of your life bring different forms of writing Mm. and different levels of creativity. Mm. There might be a very kind of fertile time in your life and a more fallow time in your life, which can then be followed by another period Mm. of fertility. Mm. And I think that is important to not despair when you're in the fallow times. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. Um, Which brings me to my little piece of writing advice, which has to do with what I was talking about earlier, which is – do you put a book in a drawer when you finish it? And if so, for how long and what you get out of that? So the conventional wisdom is that if you just put it away for a while, it gives you the distance to come back and be much more critical of it, to sort of see it with fresh eyes and be able to spot its flaws and and maybe redraft it in mm. some way. Is it something that you do? I do do it to some extent. Um, and as you're aware, I've, I've recently been editing a book, as anyone listening's been aware. And in that case, I had put it away for quite a long time mm-hmm. and come back to it. And funny enough, this ties a little bit in with what I wanted to say about writing advice, because I do think 
on the whole, that is very true. You come back with new eyes. You come back with a fresh perspective. You can see because you're reading it as a reader, mm -hmm. you can see where your pacing is wrong. That's something I often struggle with, getting that pacing right. Um, you can see where your interest dips. You can see – you see it as a reader. Mm -hmm. So on the whole, I think it's very good advice. I had a thing that happened, though, that I – Stop being able to see the book. Mm -hmm. I had seen mm -hmm. it too much. I had read it too much. And I just, I couldn't see the wood for the trees. And eventually I just closed the document and sent it to my publisher because I wasn't doing anything valuable. And in that process, I tried, I don't know if I have spoken before about advice I have heard and wanted to try where you put the book in a different font right. and it makes you see the book um, in a new way and lots of writers do this when they're editing mm -hmm. and it somehow gives them the distance maybe the time would otherwise give the new font gives a distance and I got very excited because I thought I'll do this and I'll have the distance well Fiona I don't know what those people are on but it made absolutely no difference to me I put it in several different fonts <laughs> and I still couldn't see the book and I still was absolutely fed up with it so if I've ever told you to put it in a different font to have a new vision of it, I am cancelling that advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to hear from our listeners. If anything that Mandy said resonated with you, please let us know. Do you put a book away before uh, revising it? And if so, has that worked for you? Have you tried the different font thing? Have you tried reading your manuscript aloud? Some people swear by that. Mm -hmm. If you have any tips for us or our listeners, please get in touch. We're on all social media across the board, and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.